the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we hear more about the billion-dollar cuts to the state budget announced by Governor Josh Green at a press conference yesterday. He expressed concern that the Council of Revenues rolled back its projections and that the expected uh, shortfall has left him little wiggle room. Here's how he explained the situation. This is the big picture where we are on spending. We are correcting those deficits, and we end up with a $10.7 billion budget fiscal year 24 and a $9.9 billion budget in fiscal year 25, which is very significant spending. In, in fact, increases in some of our priorities, which is why we're so pleased with what the legislature did. It reflects significant increases, like I said earlier, in housing, in homeless services. These are some of the priorities that were extraordinary that got funded. A healthcare professional loan repayment program. That is going to make sure that we can provide health care for all the people of Hawaii. It's extraordinary. Uh, the Medicaid reimbursement question, because we have not had enough resources in Medicaid, even though our number of Medicaid patients has gone up to well over 400,000, makes a big difference in order to keep our health care system intact. You see appropriations on the neighbor islands, for example, Hilo Medical Center, uh, expansion of $50 million, a priority from the legislature, over $130 million in climate uh, and natural resource protection. Over $500 million for affordable housing and housing infrastructure, which was great work by the legislature, of course. Over $60 million for homeless programs, and then $38 million for the preschool open doors program. Now, we're going to go into the actual specific cuts. I'm sure that that is what uh, is very interesting to all of us. Uh, one example, and then I'll, I'll turn it over uh, to our budget and finance director, is we have to keep enough money in the rainy day fund for our state. We have $1 billion. The legislature at the time was able to make it $2 billion. We're going to restrict that over two years, and we're going to split the difference. We will be at $1.5 billion in our rainy day fund, which positions us perfectly at 15% of our budget to handle, God forbid, if we have a hurricane or some other disaster. There are other projects that will have to come later. You'll see some significant, uh, significant redu reductions in spending on the tech park. It's not going to be just yet. There is need to enhance our capacity to deal with crises, but that is a very open-ended, and we have to be a little bit careful. So we're going to focus on the priorities of housing, healthcare, education, and climate, and then we're going to keep coming back to these other issues in the subsequent years. And we were able to reach uh, State Senator Donovan Dela Cruz, the Ways and Means Committee Chair, this morning for a reaction to the cuts, which includes a pet project of his, the uh, Law Enforcement Tech Park. Uh, Dela Cruz is in New Zealand looking at agriculture projects there, and he said he understood why the governor chose to cut big-ticket projects rather than nickel and dime the state budget. The governor and I had breakfast on Monday, and we had a long conversation. We talked about lots of different issues. It's hard to argue the fact that Council of Revenues brought the, the projections down so much where he needed to actually make cuts. The reason why they're keeping a $500 million carryover and talking to the budget director is they want to be able to anticipate Council of Revenues coming back because they, they are going to come back uh, at least two more times before the governor has to submit his budget. In, in the case that Council of Revenue goes down in a, in a percentage point again, uh, they want to have some cushion there so that they're not having to, to look at further cuts. Okay, so you see where he's coming from. I mean, if I was in, in, in his shoes, you know, the budget is now in, in his court and he ha that he has a responsibility, a constitutional responsibility, um, to make sure that he can sign a balanced budget. One of the things that he did cut was a project that you supported uh, for the high-tech park there in Mililani. Uh So what are yeah. your thoughts on that and its future? 
first of all, when we, we had um, inserted those items into the budget at the request of the department. And so I'm a little bit disappointed that the departments, for, for whatever reason, are not being vocal about advocating for themselves, uh, knowing that we bought that property about 10 years ago, specifically to solve the problems that they had brought to my attention back when I was either waterland chair or economic development chair. So we, we tried to do that to solve a lot of different problems so that it would be a lot cheaper for the state in the long run, instead of trying to fund and develop a plan for each individual agency independently. That would have cost a lot more, especially since quite a bit of agencies are in decrepit facilities or they lease space from somewhere else, so they can't make any improvements because they're on leases. The state doesn't normally invest a lot of money and capital when we're in a lease. So that, you know, that's for something for the department. Uh, but the governor is committed to trying to help solve these problems. Um, so during the interim, uh, we're going to be meeting with, with the administration and the different agencies and let them, again, propose how they would like to see these problems solved, and then we can, we can discuss it. And hopefully they'll be proposing that in the budget in some form or fashion so that we can at least uh, make sure that the pu- public safety is, is going to be the priority. And you uh, were talking specifically, I think, about what Haima uh, the center there uh, over at Diamond Head. And uh, another thing that was also flagged was the data center, uh, which is yeah. below sea level and not a good spot, very vulnerable to floods, that kind of thing. And, and that's a critical government service. Yeah. So, you know, the data center was, was an issue when I first got into the Senate, which was back in 2011. When we were, we were trying to help solve those issues with uh, previous directors, um, and, and even now, um, the, the new director of, of Enterprise Services wants to ensure that we have a, uh, a separate data center so that we can make sure that the public's personal information is not going to be compromised. Uh, we, we, they will be putting as, many, as much information as they can on the cloud, but he really believes that there still needs to be a state data center for certain information that needs to be secure that we don't want to to get compromised and you know I, I share his, his his priority and his concern and so that's part of the reason why we wanted to provide a new facility for him that's going to be a lot more secure that meets today's standards and future standards of to, to protect our information the Haima Center and there's no doubt that that's not enough space for them uh, and they're, they're also concerned about the fact that they'll be in, in gridlock if they're trying to get in and out of that specific uh, Haima headquarters currently there's not enough space for storage you know especially during an emergency we're talking about food storage equipment storage all types of different things that we're going to need in a natural disaster or any type of disaster and so they wanted a little bit of breathing room so that they can update their center and make sure that they have the, the type of, of layout to best serve the public. Critics of that tech center, though, were saying that it hasn't been vetted enough and that, you know, some of the departments weren't really sold on the idea that we needed, you know, one central place for law enforcement agencies. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that that's entirely true. All people have to do is go and look at the documents. And back in in the mid, maybe about 10 years ago, eight to 10 years ago, the state had hired the University of Hawaii Community Design Center to do charrettes. They met with every department. They met with with all the different divisions in those departments that that need 
be relocated or need to, need some kind of upgrade, and and your UH students did that. So there's a full report, um, at least eight years old, that discusses the needs and the future layout of of the entire tech park for our first responders and and some of our law enforcement agencies, and that also included a county. So. If anyone wants to see that that report, that is already public. I mean, that's been public for quite some time. In addition to that, HCDC had hired SSFM for several years ago to conduct more professional studies after the, the Community Design Center, and SSFM also met with all the different agencies. And so those reports should be public, and they can get copies of those from HCDC. So this has been vetted and discussed for quite some time. I mean, my, myself personally, I've been putting these in my community and district newsletters, uh, my cookbooks when I ran for re-election, and I've always promoted the fact of, for public safety. One of the things that Haima had told me when these ideas first came about was that in a natural disaster, the only airport that may not be compromised is the Wheeler Airfield because all the other airports on Oahu are next to the ocean. So when we're looking at uh, a situation where we're going to have to bring in critical goods, uh, it's probably going to be in central Oahu. Central Oahu is next to the, the, the different military bases. It's also next to NSA. So when we're talking about cybersecurity and data, we also need a state fusion center or what they call a SCIF now. There's so, so many issues that Hawaii has not kept up with. And the longer we don't try to solve these issues, we're just making ourselves more vulnerable. And so the criticism that uh, you were hearing from your fellow lawmaker, Representative Peruso, about the concerns that she had about that development? Yeah, but it's really easy to criticize. It's very difficult to come up with a plan and try to meet our state's challenges and, and solve our state's problems. We've talked about strategic retreat, and everybody said they agree with climate change, they, they agree with sea level rising, they agree that we need public safety to, to ensure that we have up-to-date public safety facilities. We need to invest in the data center. So I propose something that the legislature in the past has funded and, and supported. If the critics don't like that proposal, they should at least be committed to continue to solve these problems and come up with an alternative, which I have not heard of any yet. So while the funding uh, for that center is uh, on the chopping block, I don't know, what are your expectations? Uh, you know, what, what do you think is going to no, happen up there? Yeah, well, like I mentioned, we're going to continue to have discussions on trying to solve our issues with the first responders and, and law enforcement, with, with the governor. And if, as, if they develop different alternatives and, and they want input, you know, I, we, we want to be able to work together so we can ensure some kind of outcome. Uh, with the existing property, if, if the administration uh, does not want to proceed with that particular property, you know, I, I really believe it's just time to pivot. And there's other issues that we can solve in regards to helping agriculture, helping um, local food manufacturing and value-added products. We, we invested quite a bit of money so that we can put more farmers on ag land. The state now owns over 4,200 acres of ag land in central Oahu. Uh, we're working on a value-added center. We're working on uh, trying to build some warehouse space, but it's not enough. Uh, if you talk to any farmer or value-added producer, there's no warehouse space. We're really tight in inventory with, in regards to where Kalihi is or uh, Sand Island or Carmel Industrial Park. And so we support our value-added producers. We provide manufacturing grants. And oftentimes, uh, people are going to have to leave the state because they, they can't scale up because they don't have a place to do business. 
And so that's another option that we can look at. It's helping our indoor farmers who use technology. You know, people right currently do microgreens, hydroponics, aquaponics, use um, auto grow systems. My Pahu is, has, is now that has that at their high school where they're teaching students on how to use that. So, so new farmers are going to have to be looking at things not just on on our land but also in indoors. So we're going to need a place for them uh, to to do that kind of farming. So there are options. So those are different options. There are options. Okay. Where, we, where we can still solve our state, other state challenges and, and goals. And that was Ways and Means Chair Donovan Dela Cruz, who we reached this morning in New Zealand to get reaction to the billion-dollar cuts to the state budget that the governor announced yesterday. We continue to talk about the budget cuts on our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair is with us. Hi, Chad. You were at that news conference yesterday, right? I was, Catherine. I'm actually reporting on my own story today. Yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, it, I, I was kind of surprised that that came so quickly. I knew we had the budget or the veto deadline uh, out there, but um, I guess he had to make those hard decisions. Yeah, I haven't seen a line item veto uh, press conference. Um, I cannot remember the last time a governor held that. A line item veto is usually done more discreetly um, and certainly not ahead of um, the veto intent deadline. That's for all the bills, right? Mm -hmm. The actual legislation. Of course, the line item veto, in this case, 22 specific appropriations that the governor said, no, we're going to cut them. You were just talking to Senator Dela Cruz about some of that. And uh, the governor says, I mean, it's it's simple mathematics. There's a billion dollars plus that we have to cut because the Council on Revenues uh, downgraded or reversed, if you will, its growth projection. Back in March, it was 3%, mm-hmm. looking pretty good. In May, after the budget was already settled, it's a negative 1%. And so the governor didn't have much choice uh his decisions for making uh, those particular cuts, of course, uh, are being debated. Uh, but the governor did stress priorities were affordable housing and homelessness and health care and the environment, not necessarily a first responders park uh, in, in Mililani. Yes. And, you know, that was particularly controversial because but there was a bill, right, to uh, to see that through. And then that bill, uh, I think, died. And then somehow that money got put in the budget. Yeah, I mean, you heard uh, the senator defending why it's important that there's all these people that are on board. But the process by which um, the funding got through was something that particularly upset Amy Peruso, whose area, whose district is out in that region of Oahu as well. Uh, Peruso did, in fact, kill a bill to arrange for some of that funding. The senator then very discreetly, very quietly inserted money back into the overall budget bill. That's HP 300 that we're talking about. And it amounts to a total of $71 million that the governor uh, decided to uh, kill yesterday. That included money for that data center, uh, as well as the Hyema facilities. Um, I think the I think the senator does have some compelling arguments. But when you do it that way, and, and, and mind you, a lot of House reps actually ended up voting against the budget, mm-hmm. and hardly anyone in the House and Senate actually got to see the final draft of it uh, before they voted on it. It was done on the last day of session, uh, not very transparent or accountable. 
And so I think that was in part what's so upsetting. The argument for the first responders camp, those are other arguments to be had as well. But the process was something that was concerning. Yes, and you folks have done a number of stories about, you know, some of the politics, behind-the-scenes politics, uh, you know, going on, uh, you know, folks that maybe were opposed uh, to funding this project. I think you had uh, UH uh, Vasilis Sermos, you know. Uh, right, one of the, the members of the HTDC, and the, uh, Senator reels off a lot of acronyms. He's better at it than I am. I think it's Hawaii Technology Development Corporation, but uh, uh, someone from UH was on there. Well, effectively, the senator managed to remove that position from HTDC. HTDC is one of the many state agencies that are involved here uh, regarding the first responders camp because it's, it's multiple organizations. But here's another acronym for you, HBD. HBD, the Honolulu Police Department, doesn't want to move uh, from, you know, downtown Honolulu nearby, move its offices there. They will store some narcotics, I believe, and some other storage, according to Senator Delacruz, but they testified against it. The governor actually mentioned HPD's reluctance uh, in his press conference yesterday. He wants more answers, more clarity on why this is important. Again, I think the senator does have a point. That data center that we have now dates to the 1970s, and it looks and feels that way, and it's fallen apart. In Hyema, it's deep in, in Diamond Head Crater, and that, that facility was built back during World War One. been modernized somewhat, but um, there is an argument to be made. Does it need to be this enormous campus on 243 acres in Mililani next to the Tech Park? I, I don't know. There's a, that's some of the big questions as well. Is this something we can afford? Do we need it? Some call it a cop city, like what happened in Atlanta. Yeah, or a man cave. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, lots of concerns. I, I saw, you know, the governor said, well, we all saw what happened with rail, right? It started with mm, yeah, <laughs> a yeah. couple million and now it's 10 billion. So, yeah, concerns. There. Yeah, he made he made that analogy. And, and, of course, he's also going forward with Aloha Stadium. And some mm-hmm. of wonders whether that's worthwhile. But this this particular project in Milan, the first responders camp, it's hundreds of million dollars, at least 300 to 500 um, you know, half a billion dollars and so forth. Um, and that's a big expenditure. The governor did stress we got to be real careful with these big projects to make sure they're worth uh, worth taxpayer money. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, unusual press conference yesterday and uh, lots yes. of fallout. So we'll have to track this and see what happens uh, uh, if Thank there you. is a special session to overcome any vetoes. We'll but see. Stay tuned. We'll see. All right. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Catherine. All right. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Um, read his uh, full story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. We have a couple of stories related to libraries coming up later in the program. So today we are testing your knowledge of libraries in Hawaii. The groundwork for our state library system was laid in 1879 as the Honolulu Library and Reading Room Association. 
Funding and books were provided by Hawaii's royalty at the time. King Kalakaua also provided tax exemptions and a land grant for a permanent site in downtown Honolulu. In 1909, the association became the Library of Hawaii, and with a $100,000 grant from American industrialist and philanthropist uh, Andrew Carnegie, the cornerstone for the first library building was laid in 1911. In 1913, it officially opened to the public. Then in 1921, the county library law established separate public libraries on Kauai, Maui, and Hawaii. Uh, in uh, 1927, Oahu's library was expanded, and it was around that time libraries on our uh, other islands began to pop up. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of the oldest uh, public library branch outside uh, of Oahu, still in operation today. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right, scores an HPR reu- reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. HPR enriches its reporting with important historical context. The anniversary of the death of Captain Cook may not be replacing Valentine's Day celebrations in Hawaii anytime soon, but there is a growing awareness of this history and what it means to the Native Hawaiian people. The story goes on February 14, 1779. Word is being shouted from the ocean that this chief has been shot and killed. And in that one tense moment, the chiefs are not having it. That's when Cook is killed. There's a growing sense that we can no longer tolerate the big and small incursions upon our land and our people. Hawaiian historian Kihau Abad says this was a symbolic moment for Native Hawaiians. Cook's arrival brought with it infectious diseases that devastated the Native Hawaiian population. Support local news coverage. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. program celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. It's a program that supports students here in Hawaii and around the Pacific on their journey to medical school. HPR's reporter Ku'uve Hirishi joins us to talk about its impacts. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. It, I can't believe it's been 50 years of this program. This is, a, for those who might not be familiar, a year-long program designed to help college graduates from disadvantaged backgrounds really transition uh, to medical school. And every year it's very uh, selective. They only accept 12 uh, individuals into a program each year. And Maui native Eileen Farrar was one of this year's Imiho'ola graduates, graduating last night at Jabsum. Uh, She said she's always wanted to pursue a career in medicine, but after completing undergraduate studies in pre-med, at USC, gosh, 10 years ago, she felt she wasn't quite prepared for the rigors of medicine until she went through Imiho'ola. 
Emi has really just strengthened just my foundation and in, in the basic sciences and the critical thinking and understanding like the physiology of the human body and like the pathophysiology of certain diseases. You know, before starting Emi, I wouldn't have known any of that. Again, just has given me that foundation and has set me up. I feel like to be successful um, in medical school. That's nice to hear. Right, Ferrar uh, says she's uh, you know also gained confidence in herself through the program because medical school can be daunting if you know when you're sort of by yourself. But she spends that she spent the last year amongst her peers in this program, all sort of getting that foundational knowledge. And and really, she's really excited to actually return to her community as a doctor and hopes to become a role model for other young aspiring Filipina doctors. Um, Imi Ho'ola Program Director Winona Kalawahi Lee says, you know, they've been They've had more than 300 graduates go through the program over the last 50 years and uh, continue on to medical school and are now serving on the front lines in our communities here in Hawaii, which we know, I think the last estimate on our doctor shortage was nearing 800. And so what this program tries to do is really take folks uh, from these communities and give them this extra boost to get ready for medical school. Typically, medicine is such a competitive field to enter. And so Imi Ho'ola has served as a proven pathway for students who may not have had access to resources, may not have the privilege, but they actually have capacity and everything that is needed to become a physician. If you think back, Imi Ho'ola was established in 1973. And at that time, they realized they were little to to no Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander physicians or graduates at the medical school. Amy Ho'ola was initially launched by uh, Dr. Ben Young, who uh, some may be familiar with, was uh, the medical doctor on board the maiden voyage of Hokulea down to Tahiti back at the time. He helped launch the program, and it was initially geared uh, at sort of finding Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander aspiring doctors to move on to medical school. But in 1996, the program morphed um, to uh, focus on aspiring doctors from underserved communities and disadvantaged backgrounds. But those with a commitment to want to return to Hawaii or the Pacific to uh, become doctors in those communities. Another big change uh, was the program gained conditional acceptance at JABSUM. So in the past, uh, uh, individuals would go through the program and still have to apply for medical school and sometimes might not be able to get in. The program was able to uh, come to an agreement with a John A. Byrne School of Medicine so that students who do complete the program after that year are actually automatically accepted into medical school here in Honolulu. Um, Queen's Health System has been a big supporter. They jumped on board in recent years to actually pay Imi Ho'ola participants a monthly stipend, right? So they don't have to do that extra two or three jobs that, they're, that they are uh, working on to study for the MCAT and get ready for med school. And uh, surprising this year, graduates of Imi Ho'ola are actually getting a full ride to Jabsa. Wow, that's really interesting. You know, just uh, thinking back when we didn't have any Native <laughs> Hawaiians or Pacific Islanders, and you think of all the the Hawaiian doctors. Right. And I, I was going to mention a Dr. Emmett Aluli, uh, who some might know, mm. uh, one of the uh, more, I think, uh, 
prominent Imiho Ola yes, graduates. And, and who we lost, unfortunately, we recently. Did. Yes, um, there are also a number. I know a, a, a classmate or a, a schoolmate of mine that had gone through a Hawaiian immersion is actually our first graduate to become a doctor. She also went Akole Yoane through this program. So it's sort of a finding folks in the community that may not have otherwise have that opportunity to get to that point and bringing them in, giving them the training. And, you know, we've seen studies that show that uh, individuals going to seek care feel a little bit more comfortable when yes. there's somebody that looks like them or with the same background as them treating them. Right. And, you know, I, I just think recently with the with COVID, you know, we interviewed the Marshallese doctors, you know, right. so getting those underserved communities boost up uh, the, the candidates. But yeah, a great program. Hard to believe it's been 50 years. But thank you so much. Thank you. We have been talking to HBR's Kuvehiri Ishii about the impact of the Imi Ho'ola program, which celebrates its 50th anniversary. Check out her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Hundreds of leaders in the field of artificial intelligence recently signed an open letter warning that AI could lead us to extinction, so we'd better mitigate the risk. But what are the risks and what are the benefits of AI? On the next Fresh Air, we'll talk with New York Times tech reporter Cade Metz, author of a book about the pioneers of AI. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Aloha United Way Women United, committed to helping strengthen women and women-led families on Oahu. Grant applications now being accepted, auw.org slash women united. Theater is a regular feature of the Hawaiian Mission House's historic site and archives. This season featured key figures in Hawaii. On the list, American businessman Charles Reed Bishop, who founded the Bishop Museum in honor of his late wife, Princess Bernice Pawahi Bishop. Native Hawaiian scholar Emma Nakuina held a key position overseeing collections at that museum. And also Robert C. Wiley, a Scottish physician and Hawaii's Minister of Foreign Affairs. He collected records that served as the genesis of the state archives. And George R. Carter, uh, his collections helped to start the Hawaiian Mission Houses Museum and Archive. And this morning, we highlight the contributions of Edna Allen, who served as Hawaii's first librarian for two decades. We talked with Eden Leigh Murray, who brings Allen to life this season. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Please raise your hand if you have ever applied for and received a library card. 
Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I could speak all night in praise of that invaluable institution. And as librarian of Hawaii for 20 years, I have much to tell. But first, let me start with a hypothetical question. What if I held a stack of Dewey Decimal Catalog cards, but instead of corresponding to books, they each represented you, and you, and you. What identifying information about yourself would be listed on that card? And then she goes on to explain what would be, what hers would be, it would be her name and an address, and it's the address of the public library. Again, it's not about her, it's about what her life was about. And so we can visit the library now, and the children's room, the reading room, bears her name. I have to tell you a funny story, which is when I got my seven-page, 20-minute monologue through email, the first thing I did was go to the library and find the room. And in that room, each table has a little sign that says, no unaccompanied adults are allowed. So I went to the librarian. I said, I'm sorry, I don't have a child with me, but this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to learn how to bring Miss Edna Allen to life. May I have special dispensation to sit at one of these tables and work on the script? And she was just lovely. She said, absolutely, and here's a picture. Would you like to see what she looked like? I said, oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> so that's how the journey began in the public library. And so when you're sitting in that reading room that was named for Edna and you think of her contributions to the public library system that we know on all the islands. I don't know. Um, what, what were you struck by? What was I struck by? Well, one thing that I did learn from Mike Smola, he's the education director at Hawaii Mission Houses Museum, he let me know that she, Hawaii is the only state in the union that has a statewide library system, and that is because of Edna Allen, because of what she did. She received word when she was in Cleveland at the Cleveland Public Library that Hawaii was desperately in need of a public library and a professionally trained librarian. So she submitted her resume. She was offered the job. She gets to Hawaii, and one of the first things she talks about as new in Hawaii is she had two dedicated missions. One were the children to make every single educational possibility open to the children who had not had access to the library to date. So that was the first mission. And the second mission was for the library to be free. And then from there she went to Governor Walter Freer to get government investment. Through Governor Freer, well, he used her records, which were meticulously kept. He went to Andrew Carnegie, who was putting up public libraries all over America at that point, he used her records to convince Carnegie to create a public library in Hawaii. And then from there, it just expanded. They expanded services throughout the outer islands. She took library service to schools, to hospitals, to the military, to prisons, and as far as Kalaupapa. She just sort of, it's the good side of if you give somebody an inch, they take a mile. She just kept going. So, Miss Allen, you are being given this honor. Uh, your name is there in the reading room uh, that children flock to for story hours. What do you think of all this attention? I must say, it came, of course, after I passed on. During my life, I, I, 
avoided name recognition for any of the accomplishments that I I put into action. And I, I must say I was deeply moved when I found that they had named the children's room after me. Huh. I, I don't do well with tribute. I just need to see my work carried out. There was, among the many tributes to my work, this one read, there was perhaps no one in all Hawaii who exercised so wide an influence as Miss Edna Allen, and yet was so little in the limelight. Librarian of Hawaii for 20 years, she was one of the real builders of this territory. That says it all, you know. And she was surprised after her death, so the piece implies, to realize what was written about her as assiduously as she tried to stay in the background. Pupu Cemetery Theater tries to always to have a theme that connects the characters that are being presented. And I think it's fascinating that for three of the five of us, I believe, are performing next to the gravesite of the person they represent. I don't know how long ago Mike Smola started working on it, but they could not find Edna Allen's gravesite in that in the cemetery. And I was thinking I was disappointed because I brought a lay and I wanted to thank her and I wanted to ask her for guidance. And opening night last Friday, we still didn't know where she was. And I got to the cemetery Saturday night and Kahana Ho, who plays Emma Nakuina, came running up to me and said, Eden Lee, Eden Lee, I found her. And I followed Kahana, and sure enough, there was Edna Isabel Allen. And it's, there, there looked as if there'd been some, um, there was a, a suggestion that the stone may have been moved, which is why people didn't know, you know where she was. But at least I was able to lay the lay and say thank you. And Saturday night, as far as I'm concerned, she was there. And she didn't marry and didn't have children. She was married to the library. And as she says, every youngster that enjoys the enchantment of the children's facilities at the library is a child for whom I made a difference. And that fulfills me. I think that's beautiful. <laughs> well, I think for folks who don't know Poopoo Theater, uh, when you see these characters come to life and you acknowledge you know, their contributions to the Hawaii Nei that we know, um, it just really peels back a layer and a dimension to our community that is just so important. Well, and something that somebody said, actually, Will Hao, our director, said um, he heard not once but a number of times after opening night people coming up in amazement and saying they didn't feel like actors putting on a show. They were their people talking to us, and they found it very moving. Well, the cemetery is a wonderful living museum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, for the folks who are out there who've uh, never taken part in the event, it, it really is a, a, a wonderful thing to, to be there in the cemetery to see these characters of Hawaii. And the light is extraordinary. It's a, a wonderful arc. It begins at 6, and it's pretty much over at 9. And the audience, everybody rotates from station to station. and. I think I love, 
I love the beginning. Well, they're all just a little bit different, right? But for the first four, I can see my audiences and I can see them in that light and I can play off whatever energy they're they're giving me as they receive the very different reactions as these facts are introduced. And, and, and one of the things that I try to do as an actor is to deeply personalize everything that Edna Allen is talking about because everything she mentions means something special to her. And to watch people receive that is fascinating. And you shared a story about preparing for this role? Yes, uh, thank you. It's um, it's a long, it's a seven-page monologue, and it, it, it plays beautifully, right? But to learn seven pages of material is a challenge. And one of the ways I work um, with, with material in general is once I get it off the page and in my head, I write it out longhand because there's a wonderful connection between your brain and your hand when you're just writing as fast as you can, trying to write as fast as the character thinks. So I, the first time I did that, I looked at it after it, I, and it was not my handwriting. <laughs> and I was amazed at that. Very very chicken skin story. That was uh, Eden Leigh Murray, who portrays Edna Allen, who served as state librarian for 20 years and helped establish Hawaii's public li- library system. The Pupu Theater runs for two more Saturdays at the Oahu Cemetery. Uh, this weekend, Saturday show is sold out, but I'm told that seats for the final Saturday are still available. The good news is that the show will also head to Maui. So look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. it's time to drop the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier we asked you for the name of the oldest public library outside of Oahu, still in use today. If you guessed the Honoka'a Public Library uh, in, on Hawaii Island, we understand why. The 3,000-square-foot th- plantation-style building was opened in 1937. In fact, it just celebrated its 86th anniversary, making it the oldest library still in operation on the island. Plus, it's the only place in the community that still rents DVDs. While 86 years is nothing to sneeze at, the oldest library outside of Oahu that's still in use is Maui's Wailuku Public Library. It was the first to be built in Maui County and opened August 6, 1929. It was designed by architect C.W. Dickey with a high steep roof to facilitate air circulation on hot Maui days. Today it's also the home to the state-of-the-art Maui bookmobile. All told, the Hawaii State Public Library System has over some 51 branches on all of our major islands and is the only statewide public library system in the United States. And we had no winners today, but that's the quiz. And if you have a, an idea to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
And while we have libraries on our mind, the Friends of the Library of Hawaii kicks off its summer sale this weekend at Ward Village in the old Pier 1 store space. We talked to Nainoa Mao, Executive Director of the Friends Group, about the fundraiser for our state library system. Uh, uh, Mao is very familiar with the Edna Allen Children's Room at the main library and was happy to learn that Hawaii's first librarian is being acknowledged for her contribution to the state. I've been in the children's room many times. I love how they have that beautiful mural on the wall. Everything is really low for the kids. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's fun to see them, you know, exploring that space. And here at the book sale, our 74th annual sale will take place at Ward Village from June 17 through 25. And we have tons of children's books here, too. And they're all priced really affordably for the kids, for the families. And, you know, families go through kids' books so quickly. Well, how is it that we were able to get so many this year? Well, we always have quite a few. And I think it's partly we have more donations of kids' books. It is a trend that a lot of school libraries have been closing. And so it may be a factor of receiving those books. We may have, you know, been able to process more of a backlog that we had from the pandemic, too. So overall, we just have tons of kids' books, maybe twice as many as normal at this time of year. Well, Edna Allen would be happy (laughs) to learn about that. (laughs) I think so. You know, you've worked with the Friends of the Library over the years. What do you think this means, the fact that, you know, we have this public library and, you know, libraries are so highly regarded here in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Well, the public libraries are in every community here in Hawaii. There are 51 statewide. And the rural community libraries are really, you know, a gathering place for their communities. Here in urban Honolulu, they are, you know, a little bit different than those community libraries out maybe on Molokai or Lanai. And the programming at the at those libraries is really important for their community, sort of like their door to the world. And here with Friends of the Library of Hawaii, I've worked here for 13 years, and we've been around for 144 years. So we are happy to have promoted the start of public libraries in Hawaii and to help sustain uh, all of that wonderful programming that our community enjoys. And the fact that you are in a space now there at Ward Village, you know, I mean, it used to be we would go to the McKinley uh, cafeteria <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and and comb through the books, but now you're in a different facility and you have a regular bookstore where you can sell the books to the general public at Ward Center. Yes, we have been very fortunate to have partnered with Ward Village during the pandemic, our longtime sponsors, our 10th year of sponsorship from Hawaii State Federal Credit Union, they continued to sponsor us during the pandemic. And that allowed us to open a bookstore, a pop-up at Ward Village in the Pier 1 space. And we were there for eight months and we were very well received by the community. So Ward Village moved us across the street into a space at Ward Center. It's a little bit smaller, but it is a longer term space. and. We're just really grateful that they'll have us back at the Pier 1 space. McKinley is definitely an experience. It's a (laughs) tradition for generations to go there, but it is a little bit more convenient for us to have the sale at Ward Village as long as it's available. We do 
hope that McKinley will have us back at some point. And I do get a lot of comments that people miss the cafeteria, even though mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so hot. They definitely want to go back to McKinley. And is there anything that people should know about this sale this weekend? Well, the sale starts on the 17th Saturday at 9 a.m. If you're a member, you can come in Friday from 4 to 8, and that's a member of Friends of the Library of Hawaii or of Hawaii State Federal Credit Union. And it runs all the way through the following Sunday, the 25th. We do have quite a bit to put out, so we'll be restocking constantly. And if you're interested in some of our more desirable or you know more popular sections like Hawaiiana, then you should show up in the first few days because while we do have quite a bit to put out, it goes really quickly. We have a ton of media and we're bringing back the art as well. So we've got a great variety, a great selection, and we always have the bookstore across the street. So if you miss a sale or if you're not finding what you're looking for at the book sale, you can also check out the bookstore and see what we've got there. Okay. Well, we thank you for all that you do as a volunteer group to support our library system and to support literacy. And yeah, and I think you folks have made Edna Allen very happy. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Thank you. All right. Thank you for having me. That was Nainoa Mao, Executive Director of the Friends of the Library of Hawaii, which holds its annual book sale starting this Saturday. Look for links on our website later today. That does it for us. Up tomorrow, the city prepares to roll out its branding plan for the new rail system as it gets closer to the soft opening skyline and a surprise mascot. Got feedback or questions? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 